and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Uh, let's see. This morning, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, looking at verses 7 through 11. We're starting our Christmas series. We're titling this By His Son. We're going to talk about how we've been loved, pursued, redeemed, um, spoken to, commissioned, and I'm forgetting one of them. But over the next six weeks, we're going to cover how God has done those things for us through His Son. And so if you want to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, that's what we are going to cover, uh, that we have been loved by God's Son. The question I wanted to ask you to start is, what makes love difficult to give and receive? I wanted to share an interaction that uh, my wife and I had on text. She said yesterday, she sent me this message, a man in front of me just bought a vacuum for his wife for Christmas. And it sounded like maybe her birthday too. I just sat silent and watched as a marriage died. <laughs> Should I have said something? I, I said, hey, dum-dum, that gift sucks. He, she says, I was thinking more along the lines of, hey, man, if it's feasible within your finances for you to buy the vacuum for your wife and give her else, something else for Christmas, that'd be really wise. And I said, in his defense, we, we men, we try to listen to the things that our wife says she's struggling with or maybe that she wants. If she's irritated by the vacuum all the time and says she wants a new one, this man's probably trying to do something nice. But your line above is the wisdom he needs to hear. A tomato is a fruit, but it doesn't go in a fruit salad. A vacuum is a great gift, but it doesn't belong in Christmas wrapping. Um, and so we, we, we struggle sometimes to, to give and receive love. What's the best way for me to, for me to give love to somebody else? What's, what's the best way for you to receive it if someone's trying to extend it? And a lot of times this plays out in our relationship with God. Um, there is a love that God has extended to us, and at times we struggle to receive it. We struggle to be willing to allow everything that He's done for us to be enough. Um, we think we need to bring something to the table. We need to, we need to offer something to Him. Um, and ultimately, what He's longing for us to do is offer ourselves and trust Him. But sometimes we struggle with this. And the other thing we struggle with with love is what's the right definition for it? What's a good definition for love as a, as a noun? What's a good definition for, for love as a verb? And how can we know what a good definition is? You know, our culture would say something along the lines of love is love, and it's ambiguous and whatever you want it to be. The scriptures, as I'm going to show you today, say that God is love, that it's not an ambiguous definition, but there is a, a singular definition given to us by God for, for what love is and ultimately who love is. And so that's what I want to share with you this morning as we go through 1 John. Let me pray, and then I'll do a little bit of uh, explanation of the, the context of the passage, and I'll read it with you. Heavenly Father, this morning we, we thank you so much that you have loved us first. You have moved towards us. You gave us the ability to choose. And in giving us the ability to choose, each and every person has gone their own way. And it was important that you gave us the ability to choose, because if you made our love to you robotic, it wouldn't truly be love. But in this freedom to choose, 
we have chosen to go away from you and to love ourself above you, to, to believe that we have the answers for right and wrong and, and what love really is outside of you. And the amazing thing, God, is you knew that we would choose that, and in knowing it, you came up with a predetermined plan that you would redeem us from our lost and broken ways. And that, that redemption plan involved your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal God, becoming human, being born in a manger, and walking a life among us, growing up as a child, as a man, as a human being, but also as God incarnate, and living a life that was sinless, ultimately bringing the news that the kingdom and a better way to live is at hand, and anyone can have it if they choose to follow your Son, Jesus. But then more than that, God, you even, your Son chose to go to a cross. He chose to die on our behalf and in, in our place and for our sin and rise again three days later proving that He is the Messiah, giving those who trust Him new life and forgiveness of sins. And so that love is what you long to see shining through us, your children. That kind of self-sacrificial, unconditional love. And so we thank you that you've given it to us, God. We pray that it would radiate out of us as we're in relationship with you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I'll read these with you in just a second. Before I do, when I, when I study the Bible, there are a handful of things that I'll do. The first thing that I do is I read the passage in two, three, maybe four translations. So for me, I always open up the, the CSB, the one that I'm going to read to you today, the Christian Standard Bible, and I'll always have the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, open next to it. And then sometimes I'll bring up either the NIV or the, uh, the ESV to help. But the other one that I'll always open is an interlinear. And so what an interlinear is, is it's the original language, the Hebrew, or in this case, the Greek. And then uh, the definitions for each of the words that are used there in their original language. So we might use a word and we think it means something, but in the Greek it was used a little bit differently. Or sometimes they had words that were hard to actually put in English, and so the translators do the best job that they can. The other thing that you do when you look at language is particularly the verbs have a lot of meaning in the tenses. And so I'll look at verb tenses. I'm going to show you some of the verb tenses in this passage today. This is one of the passages where verb tenses are very important. And so I'm going to demonstrate how important they are in this passage today. But then the other thing that you want to do, you're going to look at language, and then you're going to look at history. What was going on historically at the time? In particular, to the people that John wrote to. And a lot of times you'll pick up historical context within the letter, but sometimes you have to go outside of it for help. And then, so you look at language, history, and the other one is culture. Obviously, we live in the United States in 2023. It was very different to live in the Roman world in, say, 60 to 90 AD. Very different place. And so culturally, what's going on there. So we observe. We look at language, history, and culture. And then once we've looked at language, history, and culture, we also want to look at context. What Never just read one verse and think you understand it. Um, you could take one line out of this sermon and make me say just about anything. Um, but you, So you never read it by, by itself and go, well, I read that one verse, and so now it means this to me. It doesn't. Um, that's not what the Bible is intended to do. And so what you want to do is you want to look at it within context. What's the context of the chapter that we're reading? John's talking about false teachers and how to spot them. Well, he's also talking about how to spot a, a genuine teacher and people that are actually teaching the gospel, that they're going to point to Jesus and the love that God has for us. 
But then within the rest of the letter, what's he doing? What's he doing in 1 John? It's largely dealing with false teachers and particularly legalistic people that are telling people that it's up to you to get right with God. It's on your behalf to work to be right with God. And so you have that. But then John didn't write just one letter. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he also wrote the Gospel of John. There's a lot of themes in the Gospel of John that show up in his letters. John's not the only writer of the New Testament. There there are many writers of the New Testament, human authors. There's one divine author, but there are many human authors. And so what do the other human authors have to say about God's love? What does Paul have to say in 1 Corinthians 13? What what do these other people have to say about God's love? And so we're going to be able to understand then what's, what's the context within the New Testament. But then there's more than just the New Testament. There's the whole Bible. There's the Old Testament. How is God's love revealed in the Old Testament? And so you have to look at context, the immediate context, the book context, the context within the Testament, and ultimately the context within the Bible. That means you have to read your Bible, right? Um, And and so those are the things that that are going to help us understand the passage, And so we're going to observe, and then once we've made these observations, we're going to interpret. What was the original writer's intent for the original reader to understand? And so we do the job of interpreting, and we go, the original writer wanted the original reader to know this. That's the the interpretation of the passage. And then once we have that, we can say, okay, that's how it applied to the life of a Christian in the first century. How does it apply to the life of a Christian in 2023? And we can apply the passage. And that's what you do with the Bible. Observe language, history, and culture. Context, 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 context. And then we interpret. And then we apply. What a lot of people do is take one verse out of context, come up with a meaning that the passage never had, and then try to apply that to their life and other people. And and the Bible is beneficial, but that's not the most beneficial way to read it. And so that's what I want to show you this morning as we go through this. Okay, so let's pick up here in verse 7. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So let's just make some initial observations on this slide here. Who's he talking to? He's talking to dear friends. And so that's, we recognize that his audience, his audience is Christians, okay? And then he says, let us love. And, and this word love, uh, within the Greek, there are several words for love. There's a word that has to do with brotherly love. There's a word that has to do with sexual or erotic love. They had a, they had a word for self-love. They had a word for f- familial love, the kind of endearment that you have for your children that just comes naturally. You don't have to try for it. It just happens. And then the word that's being used here is agape love. And this this word is a word that the New Testament writers reveal is true of God and it emanates from Him. That He is not just the source of love, but love itself. And this kind of love is is unconditional. It doesn't depend on how you perform. This kind of love is self-sacrificial. It gives from the one who is giving it in order for the other person to receive benefit. Um, And it's costly to the individual who's giving it. It never stops, it never quits, it keeps going, okay? That's God's kind of love. And he says, let us love one another in this way, because love is from God. It doesn't come from somewhere else, love is from God. There are a lot of false definitions for love within our culture, but true love, real love, comes from God. 
Then he says, everyone who loves has been born of God, that God is the one who causes us to be born and knows God, lives in a in a manner that demonstrates that they're walking in relationship with him. They, they know him, right? They don't, they don't know stuff about him. They know him, okay? There's a difference. Um, you could, you, some of you know me superficially and you know some things about me, but you don't know me because we haven't sat and had a meaningful conversation. And a lot of people know God superficially, but they never stop to have a meaningful conversation with him through his word and prayer, okay? So they know God. The one who does not love does not know God. This is important. He doesn't say that the one who doesn't love isn't born of God. You can be born of God and not practice love because you're not living in a relational way with him. So you can be born again and unloving. This doesn't mean that if you're not loving, you're not born again. It doesn't say that. A lot of people read it that way, but it doesn't say that. And then he says, because God is Love. Now, let me show you some of the things that are going on within the verbs. It says, dear friends, let us love. And this word love is a present active verb. It means that it's continual, that you and I should continually, actively practice God's kind of love with one another. Okay, And he says, because love is from God. We have it down here, love is from God. God is love, and because love is from him. And this is a singular noun. In other words, there's one. There's not 20 versions of God's kind of love. There's not 20 versions of love. Love isn't love. God is love, and it's demonstrated through what we're going to see in this passage, what God has done for us. Okay? And so everyone who loves, who is actively loving, is born of God. And this word born is a perfect passive verb. Perfect means that it's a past action with ongoing results into the future. That you were born of God. And just like we're born as human beings, did anybody here conceive themselves and make them born? It doesn't happen, right? God causes the conception of new life within us and then causes us to be born. He is the one who's doing it. It's passive on our behalf. God gives it. We receive it. Okay? And it's perfect in that when you've been born again, you will forever be his child. Once you're in his hand, no one can take you from, from his hand. There's nothing that you or anyone else can do to remove you from the hand of Jesus Christ. It's perfect. It's passive. He's done it. He did it to you. You belong to him. Nobody can change it, including yourself. Now, you could live in a way that is not intelligent. You could live in a way that you don't know, that if you don't know God, and this word I have the AA there, that's, the verb is aorist active. There's nothing like the aorist tense in uh, the English language. But what the aorist tense does, there's one instance where another article will make it past tense. In every other instance, the article's points you to the context of the verb within the sentence or back to the main verb. So contextually, this is telling us that those who are not actively, presently, continually in relationship with God can live in a way that they don't love. That means two things. One, that if you're not born again, you can't love in the first place. Not God's way. You can love according to the culture or you can love according to your moral ethic, but you cannot love God's way until you've been born again. But even if you're born again, you could live in an unloving way because you could live outside your relationship with God. 
And so the reason the tenses are important there is because you could read this sentence wrong and say somebody who's not loving hasn't been born again. No. Somebody that's born again could live unloving. And that's an important distinction because you are going to live in unloving ways and you shouldn't question your salvation when you do. You should go back to the source of your salvation. Somebody else is going to live in an unloving way, but you shouldn't question their salvation because they had a moment of, un, of being unloving. They need to go back to their salvation. So, dear friends, let us keep loving each other, present, active, continual, because God is the source of love. And if you want to love in that way, you have to be born again and in a meaningful relationship with him. Then he says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Uh, some observations here. This word revealed is to make known something that was previously hidden. So what he's saying here is that we didn't fully understand or comprehend God's love until Christ was on the cross. You couldn't. In fact, Socrates in 500 AD, one of the great thinkers, right? He said that if a deity can forgive sins, I don't know how. And this was a conundrum for the rabbis as well. They wondered how God was ultimately going to forgive sins through the Messiah. How could the Messiah suffer like Joseph, yet be victorious like David? How was he going to do this? How is it going to take place? And this has been the question that every culture has been asking. If God is just and he is the lawgiver and we are the lawbreakers, how can he forgive us? We have to be punished unless... God sends his son into the world. Unless God sends his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. In other words, outside of him is death. Outside of him is the consequences of our sin. Outside of him is the debt of our sin. Outside of him is unpaid, unforgiven lawlessness in each and every one of us. In him, in him, we can live. And so he sent. That's another thing that's interesting here. You read that, sounds like past tense, right? He sent his son. The verb is present, active, continual. In other words, Jesus is still working. He didn't stop working. He's still working. He's still interceding on our behalf. He's still causing us to be conformed to his image. He's still growing his church. He's still in control of the world. There's a little G God that makes this place ugly, but there's a big G God. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's in the process of redeeming everything. So that's one of the things we see is that God was, God's love is revealed through Jesus. Without the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we cannot know God's love. It was a mystery. It was something previously hidden. Not yet known, but because of the incarnation, you can say without any doubt, God loves me. God loves me. He's proven it. He has done the ultimate and laid down his life so that I could be forgiven, so that I could be made new. But if Christ doesn't go to the cross, we don't know God's love. And so the incarnation is hugely important. Verse 10, love consists of this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love consists of this. That's a present active verb. In other words, 
the definition of love isn't changing anytime soon. It's present, it's active, it's continual. God, his love consists of this. Not that any human being reached out and said, God, I love you. But that he has reached out to us and said, I love you. How? By sending his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. When we talk about the word atonement, there's two parts of it. There's expiation, which is to wash away sin, and propitiation, justice for wrongdoing. In other words, when Christ died on the cross, he washed away the account of sin that was due to God on our behalf. All of our sin, all of the, all of the debt that was due because of that was paid off and washed away by Jesus Christ. But he doesn't just leave us then to sin over and over again. He makes us justified. He says, you are forever right with God. He didn't wash away just the sins of yesterday. He washed away the sins of today, and he washed away the sins of tomorrow. You are always clean in Jesus Christ. Now, you can live in an unclean way, but ultimately, before God, you have been washed clean. Because Jesus Christ has done that work for you. Your wrongdoing, and as we saw in in the book of Hebrews, your guilt, your shame has been taken away and you are justified, made right in God's sight because Christ died for my sins, your sins, excuse me, our sins. And so we see that God is doing this for us even now. His love is made real to us in this very moment. He says, dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. And so here he's reminding us, who's he talking to? He's talking to Christians. If God loved us, and this one is is, is aorist, so it's pointing to the main verb, which we see here is love, present, active, continual, right? So when we see aorist and it's active, it's pointing back to the main verb. So it's a present, active, continual action. And God has loved us in this way. We must also love one another, present, active, continually, love one another. And he says that this, is, this word must is to owe, be obligated, or be a, debt, be a debtor and have, have to pay. There's the song that says, Oh, to grace I am a debtor. And I struggle with that song because if I'm, if I'm in debt to grace, is it grace? Right? If I give you a gift, and, and I've just given this to you, but later on I say, remember that time I gave you that thing? Now I expect this behavior from you because of that. Is that grace? It's not. There's strings attached. And if people give gifts with strings attached, just stop, stop accepting them. What's he saying then? He's, he's saying that the kind of love that God gives to us has to be reciprocated in us. That, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and he has made you a new creation and the spirit of God indwells you and one of the fruits of the spirit is love, then the new creation that you are will come out of you. And that we, we as human beings... We, we owe each other this debt. That God has designed us to live that way. 
And when we don't live in a manner where we're seeking to pay the other person but receive from the other person, we're outside of God's will. If I, if I demand from you, I'm outside of God's will. If I'm giving to you, I'm inside of God's will. If you have to be something for me in order for me to love you, that's not agape. That's conditional love. God's love is unconditional. And so he's showing us that we are to love one another. So how should we define love as a noun? Well, the first thing is that it's, it's from God. He is the source of real love. I understand you've got a lot of other definitions in your head for what love is. And you got the Disney princesses, and I'm joking. But, but, you know, all the cultural references that tell you what love is. But there's one source of real love. And it's a person. It's God. He, he is love. He doesn't have it. He is it. And you know what that means? It means that there's not some bucket full of love in heaven. And it's going to run out. It's infinite. Because he is infinite. God's love, it, it, never, it never runs out. It never, it never reaches a point where he says, I, I just don't have anything else to give. I reach that point. I'm sure you feel that at times. I just don't have anything else to give. Where am I going to go? I wonder, where should I go? Where should I go when I feel like I've run out? Who should I turn to? That's right. And then the other thing is that love, it, it used to be a mystery, but it's now known through Jesus. If he does not become a human, if he does not die on the cross, if he does not give himself for your life, for your sin, and raise again. But we don't know God's love. It's a mystery. But it's not anymore. God's love is not a mystery. It's why we celebrate Christmas each and every year. It's why we mark the calendar and we say this is when Christ, the eternal God, uh, the, the person of the Godhead, the Trinity, joined us in humanity. He took on all of our frailty. He took on all of our all of our emotions and all of our all of our pain and all of our trials and all of our temptations and all the physical anguish and emotional anguish and spiritual anguish he felt it all just like you and I do and the book of Hebrews would tell us that's what makes him such a great high priest he commiserates with us he knows and what he's saying here is beyond that beyond commiserating with us he died for us he didn't just say, I'm sorry that's that way. I'm really sorry that's that way. I hope you figure out a way to pay off your debt. I hope you find a way to overcome your sin. I hope you find a way to be forgiven. He didn't do that. He went to the cross in our place so that all of those needs would be met in him. And that is the predetermined, self-sacrificial, atoning work of Jesus on the cross. That's what defines love. And I want you to understand that this was predetermined. Like I said earlier, God knew that we would sin if he gave us free choice. 
but he gave it to us because if he doesn't give us free choice, we don't really love him. If he can push a button on a remote and make you do it, it's not love. So he gives you the freedom to choose. And all of us have chosen to go our own way. None of us seek him. But he steps towards us and he initiates love. He does it through a, a predetermined, self-sacrificial plan. And, and it's the atoning work of Jesus. And what's interesting is the author of the John, what he's saying here, what John is saying is he's saying, that's what God did, you do it too. God predetermined that he would, that he would sacrifice himself. Why? So that others could be blessed. And so he's saying, I want you to live in this way too. And I want you to understand that this kind of love won't just happen. You have to predetermine, I'm going to give myself to my wife. I'm going to give myself to my children. I'm going to give myself to my church. I'm going to give myself to my friends. I'm going to give myself to my, my city. I'm going to give myself to, to the world around me. I'm going to give myself to the lost. And, and it's going to be costly because that's what self-sacrificial is. It's going to cost me something. I'm going to have to lay things down. Why? Because like Jesus, I want to see, I can't save anybody, but I want to be a part of his atoning work. I want to be a part of laying down my life so that others enter the kingdom through him. And you won't do it on accident. You won't. You have to, you have to sit down and have a conversation with God. God, what is it that, that you're calling me to give away? And whatever it is, God, I'm determined to do it. Not, not casual about it. I'm determined to do it. Just as Christ was determined to go to the cross. We also see that uh, this love is a noun as it's a debt that is owed to each other, not God, each other based upon the redeeming work of Christ on our behalf. That's it's, as a noun. How about a verb? How should we define love as a verb? It's an action only those born of God and living in relationship with Him can practice. You have to be born and living in relationship with Him if you want to practice this. If you're not born of God and you're not living in relationship with Him, you can't practice it. You must be born again. And then once you're born again, you must look to God and walk with Him. But it's also an action that those born of God can fail to practice because they live outside their relationship with Him. Have you met an unloving Christian? Of course you have. They're born again. Have I looked in the mirror and met an unloving Christian? Of course I have. I'm born again, but I failed to practice love because I was living outside my relationship with God. It's an action that's set in motion by the sending of God incarnate in the person of Jesus. Without him, none of it happens. It's initiated by him. And this is important. He is the mover. We are the moved. If, if you want to truly be compassionate, it's a popular word in our society, if you want to truly be tolerant, if you want to truly be loving, <laughs> it's not a byproduct of being human. It's not a byproduct. Of, hate is a byproduct of being human. Greed, sin, lust, factions, anger. 
Those are a byproduct of being human. But love is a byproduct of God. It's, it's a force that, from him that is so strong that he replicates it infinitely in those who are born again and actively trust him. In other words, there's no amount of love and good that God can do. Th- there's, not a, there's not a limit to the amount of love and good that God can do through you if you're walking with him. There's no limit. There's no limit to how well you can love if you're born again and trusting him. And so the question is, how have you responded, past tense, to the love of God? And how are you responding to the love of God? What have you done with Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead? Oh, it sounds like a fairy tale. Oh, those Christians believe weird stuff. It makes more sense that everything came from nothing. There can't truly be a God that loves us so much that he would join us in our humanity. There couldn't actually be a God who has the power to to wash away sin and make me right before God and then raise again from the dead three days later. I I don't believe the hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw it and have written it down so that we can know it. I, I don't believe it. I think everything came from nothing. Or I think in order to be right with God, I have to try really hard. And if I do well enough, someday he'll let me in. Those are both wrong responses. And how are you responding to God? God, I'm born again. I want to walk with you every day. I want you to transform me from the inside out as only you can. I want you to love through me. I want you to be righteous through me. I want you to, I want you to change who I am. I don't, want to, I don't want to be just a better version of Kurt. I want old Kurt to die and I want a new Kurt to exist. I didn't bring anything other than, other than I can't bring anything other than hum- humility and need. That's, that's who I am. I, I just have humility and need, God. Will you fill me? Will you transform me? And then I have a bonus verse for you because what you could do is you could think this sounds like something you're supposed to do on your own and I'm going to make sure you don't do that. It says, this is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. You, you look at this and it says, this is how we know, present actively and continually know that we present actively and continually remain in him and he in us. He has given us, given a perfect active verb so he gave you the Holy Spirit upon your moment of belief the Holy Spirit indwells you upon your moment of belief and, and he seals you that's another word that's used of the Holy Spirit and that was the word that they would use of like a, a wax stamp on a letter and they would then press the seal of the person who sent it into the wax and it would say this is from this person and it belongs to them and that's what God has done for us he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit we are from God and we, have, we belong to God, and His mark is upon us because His Spirit indwells us. But it's also an active ongoing into the future, right? And you can do a couple of things with the Holy Spirit. You can hear His voice. You could actually reach out to Him like, I, like we've talked about. God, I want you to speak to me. What do you want me to sacrifice? How do you want me to love the way that you love? What are you, what are you asking me to let go of so that I can be transformed in the image of your son and bless other people around you? And he says, give up. And you go, I don't know about that. You could quench his voice. No, no, no. I want you to give up. But that's where I go when I'm hurt. 
That's where I go when I, when I want to run away. That's where I go when I want to feel better. Is it working? Why don't you turn to him instead? You could quench his voice, and that would grieve his heart. Or you could say, God, fill me. And this is the other word that's used. You could be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the idea there is if, if you put a cup under the faucet, and with God the faucet is always on, he doesn't run out of water, it's not a, not a drought, okay? He leaves, he leaves the faucet on. As if the cup stays there, it keeps overflowing. And that's the idea, continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. What we have a tendency to do is we say, well, I'm going to fill up on Sunday, and then Monday through Saturday, let's go see how this spills out. And we come back, boy, I feel empty. Let me go get filled up again. And then we go spill it out, and we wear out, and let me go fill it up again. He says, no, keep being filled. Don't stop being filled. Always be overflowing with the love of God as the Spirit is indwelling you and filling you. We also are called to walk with the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. And these are things that he calls us to do right now, be active in doing it, not passive, and continually do it. In other words, choose it, don't stop choosing it, and keep doing it. Do it, keep doing it, don't stop doing it. Right? It's like, keep going, which was the message of Hebrews. And so this is another thing I want to say to you, is that God is with you, and he has made you a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is actually said seven times in the New Testament. It'd be an interesting study for you to go do later. That God has made you a Christian, a temple of the Holy Spirit. When we were going through the book of Hebrews, we saw all this imagery of the, the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament and how it was made to contain God's presence. It was designed that way on purpose. It was designed to contain God's presence. Guess what the New Testament says? So are you. So are you. You are designed and made to contain God's presence. He didn't do it on accident. He made you that way on purpose. And so if that's who I'm designed to be, then I need to recognize that, that I don't call the shots, that I have a maker, he's made me a specific way, and that his goal is to, to live in me and to change me, to transform me and to cause me to be this new creation that he says that I am. And I have to choose to do that. And so, where did I go? I don't know. How have you responded to the love of God? How are you responding to the love of God? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have loved us, that you loved us first, that you reached out to us and initiated the relationship with us. A broken relationship. A broken relationship that was based upon our sin and rebellion. A relationship in which we walked away from you, and yet in your predetermined plan, you knew the cost of sin, and you paid the cost of sin by causing, by sending your Son to dwell among us as, as, as God in human flesh. And your Son, God in human flesh, He lived a sinless life. He died in our place and for our sins so that we could be made right and all of our sin would be washed away. And we would be at one with you, atoned. And that's an amazing message, and it's why we celebrate the Incarnation. It's why we recognize this time of year each and every year. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.